Good morning, everybody. So take uh, a few minutes and lead yourself through the visualization with the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, Arats, solitary realizers, Dharma protectors, Dukkhas and Dakinis, all of them, all the holy beings in front of you, yourself surrounded by sentient beings. And as you create the visualization and prepare your motivation, really rejoice that you have the opportunity to do something uh, quite wonderful. Generating bodhicitta is really very special and very precious. So rejoice that you have that possibility to generate impartial love and compassion for all beings and to have the aspiration to attain awakening for their benefit, even if you're creating that intention, uh, fabricating it right now, still to have that opportunity to do that is quite special. So let's create our motivation. And in the process of generating impartial love and compassion for all beings, sometimes we encounter a big block in our own mind where we are very judgmental about somebody else Or maybe somebody betrayed our trust and all we can see when we think of that person is that that one action they've done and our heart hardens towards them. So these kinds of feelings are very unpleasant. They cause suffering principally to ourselves, right here and now. And they also set the stage for the hardening of opinions about other people or other groups of people. And that hardening of opinions where we think that we know exactly who everybody is, because of a few actions they've said or done, a few actions they've done or a few things they've said in their entire lifetime. We have to see that that kind of judgment and solidification is really not fair. 
because people are very complicated and they're full of all sorts of contradictory emotions, contradictory thoughts, contradictory actions. So we have to train our mind to see what's good in everybody, not ignoring the faults, but not hardening our mind around them either. And when we can see the good in others and see their potential, then our attitude towards them and our way of relating to them uh, changes completely. So this is a change that has to happen in our mind, not by waiting for other people to completely change themselves. But when we can see that everybody has goodness and potential, then we can also find a way to communicate with everybody. And we find a way to connect with everybody. And then on that basis, it's easier to generate love and compassion impartially and to generate the bodhicitta, wanting to attain full awakening for their benefit. So let's generate that motivation now. So that judgmental mind, that's a real demon. We don't need external demons. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, external demons only become demons if we make them into demons. You know, whenever our mind hardens against someone and just says, they did this, They're always like this. They hurt me. I cannot recover. They are thoroughly 100% evil through and through, irredeemable. I can't stand them. Okay? And sometimes our mind gets that way towards people. Okay? 
is that an accurate state of mind? Is that a reliable cognizer? If somebody else looked at you that way, would you think that they were seeing you accurately? Would you think that their opinion of you was fair and comprehensive? Would you? You know, that you're thoroughly, irredeemably the worst thing you ever did. Not the worst thing you ever did, the worst thing they think you ever did, because different people have different ideas of what the worst things we did are. (laughs) Okay? So, no, we wouldn't, because we know, yeah, we have faults and we have good qualities, and we have the Buddha nature, we have potential. So we've got to see all of that in other people, too. If we exaggerate and make them perfect, you know, perfect means that they do everything I want them to do. Yeah. If we exaggerate and make them perfect, that's not seeing them for who they are. That's expecting them always to behave the way we want them to behave. Is that fair on our part? Hardly, is it? Okay. So similarly, when we just see them, it's like, ugh, terrible. You know, they have this one particular attitude or they did this one particular action. Therefore, forget it. Yeah. And again, we make them into cartoon figures and then project our negativity on them. So I was thinking, you know, that because I think I told you some years ago at a big Dharma event, I gave myself the assignment to talk to everybody and find something that we could talk about and have a good discussion on. So I was thinking, if I met Marjorie Taylor Greene or, or Matt Gates. And we were sitting next to each other on a plane flight across the States. Yeah? Then what would that be like? I don't want to sit there and glare during the whole flight. (laughs) (laughs) You have cooties, you know, get away from me. No, I would really like to talk to them, and not talk about politics, you know? Talk about what they're like as a human being. Get to know them on a human level. It could be quite interesting. Yeah? Forget the political stuff. Forget what I think about them as politicians. What are they like as human beings? What do they like to do? Yeah? Where have they traveled? What have they thought about the places where they've been? Uh-huh. And, and just, yeah, set up a whole new way of relating to them and take them out of being uh, caricatures or 
cartoon figures. So that's an extreme example. Yeah. But we do the same thing with individuals in our life because of what they've said or done. And we think we know everything about them. And, you know, in every aspect of that person's life, I cannot trust them. Every single aspect? Yeah. I think my experience living in India has really taught me that you meet people in different situations and you have a totally different relationship with them than you did in a previous situation. Yeah. And that that happens and that opens the door. Mm-hmm. So this is is actually quite important for our practice because if we have that kind of, you know, this person is evil and despicable and untrustable and unreliable through and through forever and ever, are we going to be able to attain an awakening if we have that view of even one sentient being? Yeah. First of all, having that view puts us very far away from bodhicitta, which is an an essential aspect of creating the causes for awakening. Second of all, it puts us very far away from wisdom because we're concretizing somebody and they are inherently existent. There's a real inherently existent self in that person that is like this. So, you know, here's our judgmental mind setting up obstacles for our own practice and inhibiting us from actualizing our spiritual aspirations by either hating somebody or seeing them as an inherently existent, horrible, despicable person. Now we're preventing bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness. Okay? So if for no other reason, and there should be other reasons, but if there isn't, for no other reason, then benefiting ourselves, we should get rid of that attitude and do something with it. Because it's blocking us from our own goals. Okay? So this this is something to to really work on in our practice. Because no matter where we go, no matter what happens, we are going to meet sentient beings who disappoint us. And we are going to meet sentient beings who betray our trust. And we are going to meet sentient beings who harm us. How do I know that? Because we're in samsara. And this is one of the grounding attributes of samsara. Okay? 
Why are we in samsara? Because we created the cause, not because the other person put us there, not because some external person put us there. Why are we going to experience these things? Because we created the cause. Yeah. So we're the ones to get ourselves out of this jam. And that's why the Buddha gave teachings to help us do that. If we were incapable of changing, the Buddha would not have wasted his time teaching us. He has much better things to do. He could go lie on the beach. Yeah. (laughs) But the Buddha clearly sees possibility in sentient beings. So no matter how rigid our mind might be right now, there's potential and there's possibility. So we've got to give ourselves a chance. Mm-hmm. I have two problems with that. <laughs> um, Only one is, two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one is I wonder um, how you could um, advise me dealing with that. Um, I like to come back. I like to, um, you know, repair the relationship as soon as possible when something happened. I don't like to be called for a long time or something. But... Um, then, you know, I, I'm in a good relationship again, but then something happens again. <laughs> so, like, this person gets angry again or leashes out on me again. And I had even uh, an experience where this person <laughs> expressed like, to me, I asked her, why are you doing it to me but not to somebody else? And she said, actually, because I know that you're always coming back to me. You're always, you know, returning basically to kindness. And so, like, I don't fear you. I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid of you. So and then I think, but you know, if a person, um, thinks she can harm me or he can harm me, um, because I'm always coming back, I'm always kind of trying to make good mm-hmm. relationship. How can I, <laughs> people speak of boundaries. I don't like that, but how can mm-hmm. I make it more, um, so that I don't know, <laughs> yeah. to protect myself maybe yeah. from that? Well, you, you have to see here. Do you, are you wanting to protect yourself or are you wanting to pr- protect that person from creating negative karma? Yeah. Um, it's fine to protect yourself, but if you do it by saying, that person is evil, you may protect yourself, and I'm not talking to them forever and ever because they're horrible, despicable. If you have that attitude, you may protect yourself physically, but you're not protecting yourself mentally. And you still don't know if that person is going to come around or not. So when we say that we don't hold grudges and we don't put people in boxes, okay, and think that's all they are, it doesn't mean that we just say, well, anything they do is okay. Okay, because if you care about somebody and they're creating negative karma by harming you, yeah, if you care about them, 
then you also want to prevent the situation where they're going to create that kind of negativity. So like in, in Precious Garland, uh, Nagarjuna talks a lot. There's a whole thing about prisoners. So this is an extreme example, but extreme examples work well. Um, <laughs> the, and he was saying, you know, you should release different people and give them another chance. And even if somebody shows no remorse and is incorrigible at that time, he said, you send them to another land where they can start afresh where nobody knows them. Okay. So, but if somebody is, is, uh, definitely harming people, and their actions are uncontrolled and they can't control themselves, then out of compassion, you might have to incarcerate them. But not because you hate them and you want them to suffer and you think that they're incorrigible. It's because, you know, you don't want them to create the negative karma and you don't want anybody else to get hurt. Okay. So similarly, if you have an encounter with, with somebody, sometimes we have an encounter and it's, it's really bad. Yeah. Uh, but we may get to know the person in another situation or whatever and see that that was just a one-off situation. You know, like I told you about this person who canceled our presentation, like right before, in a conference right before we were able to give it. Okay. Now I had the view that person, everything he did, he was 40 something years old. His whole life was not worthwhile. Well, you know, when I sat and really thought about it, he had also done some many positive things. So what he did with me was a one-off situation. It was also a situation I got upset because it, it was, in regard to my presentation, if he had canceled somebody else's presentation so that there would be room for my presentation, uh, it wouldn't have bothered me at all. And I would have been very grateful to him. Okay. So when I see that sometimes the, the things that I get upset about are, are especially because they're regarding me and not because there's anything really detrimental in the act, in the action. I mean, what he did was not unethical. It was rude and inconsiderate, but it was not unethical. So, you know, why am I holding a grudge? That's my problem. Okay. Now, if I was married to somebody and that guy was beating me, I wouldn't say, oh, I forgive you, you know, please stay. And I had an email from somebody last week, you know, saying I reported on my, my boyfriend for, you know, abuse, but now I feel guilty because he's going to have problems because I reported him. That's the wrong way to think. Yeah, he's going to have problems, but the pro his problems with the law are not because you reported him. They're because he acted in a harmful way. So you have to, you know, get the right cause <laughs> that, for, you know, got that result. Okay. So, you know, if somebody is physically abusing you, I would not say, oh, I forgive you. Yes, please come back into the house. It's fine. Yeah, 
I would say that behavior is unacceptable. You know, you can't stay near me in the in the same house, and that's it. And if it's something, you know, assault that that person could do to somebody else, I would definitely report. Okay? Because that, that's also kindness to the other person. Otherwise, they might keep acting that way. Uh-huh. And since it's easier to speak about others than about myself. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> um, uh, so what do you advise, you know, like in competitive um, uh, um, environments, you know, like workplace, schools, universities, mm-hmm. or so, or general in life? Um, and you you want to be in good relationship, but you have a fear other people or somebody else um, rather competes with you, or and that creates a distance, you know. And so somebody, I don't sometimes know what to do with that, how to relate, yeah. uh, how to make a relationship so um, that I, I feel I can fully appreciate and fully, um, you know, have compassion and love. It's difficult for me. So their great sin is that they compete with you. That's their sin. (laughs) Sin. I don't know what sin is. But (laughs) but that's the horrible, despicable action. No, no, because it creates a certain distance, actually. Um, How do you know that they're competing with you? Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm speaking about <laughs> others in my perception. I know. <laughs> oh, then let's talk about your perception <laughs> instead of the other person. <laughs> uh, speaking in general. <laughs> in society. <laughs> to keep it out of me. <laughs> If somebody is competing with us, that's their problem. It's kind of a compliment in a way, you know, <laughs> that they think that you're good enough to compete with. Hmm? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, <laughs> no, no, no. there's always, I, yeah. Um, I guess probably I'm, I'm having attachment to a good relationship and I'm defining a good relationship that there's nothing such as competing in between. Yeah. Yeah. And it would be so much better to have relationships like that. But sometimes it's best just to ignore it. Somebody's competing with you, let them do that. That's their business. Yeah? Totally their business. <laughs> yeah? They're competing with us. I mean, yeah, so what? It's really their problem, isn't it? It's not our problem. And if they look better than me, well, that's good for me because then I stop being so proud and conceited of my own position. Remember we came across that? But then you can go and compete with them and do something really nasty that makes them look bad and get your revenge. And then, and then what do you, what happens after that? Huh? They retaliate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then they retaliate. 
Sometimes it's in certain situations you have to say, you know, it depends on the relationship with somebody. You know, I've had that happen where I, I say, you know, it just seems to me that there's some competition going on here and it feels quite uncomfortable to me. Yeah. I don't say, you're competing with me and stop it. <laughs> Although that is tempting. <laughs> but it's not going to achieve the, the goal I want. If I just say, you know, I feel uncomfortable because I feel there's some competition going on, then I'm just expressing what I feel. Yeah. And I can say, and I would like to have a better relationship. Then we've said what we said, and, you know, this is hear what the other person replies yeah you're sorry I don't have to change my behavior like like someone becoming maybe the source of it is I'm not humble enough so that uh, encourages others to compete with me or um, yeah I'm too egoistically that I'm too forceful with my own goals so others are tempted to <laughs> compete with it, me it, so. it's always good to check our own behavior yeah, it's good to check our own behavior. But you shouldn't just, you know, we always check our own behavior, but we don't automatically blame ourselves for everything, and we don't automatically forgive ourselves for everything and say, I didn't have any role in it. I mean, both ways, kind of something comes up and saying, oh, yes, I'm the guilty party, I'm too conceited, I'm too this, I'm too that, I need to change, blah, blah, blah. That is just as unrealistic as, no, well, I didn't say that. Why are you competing with me? You know, I don't want to compete with you. And blame and getting very defensive about the whole thing. I mean, both of them are, are really quite unrealistic and and you know, they don't really produce the result that we want. Yeah. I was going to say the person competing with you is often in a lot of pain. Um, I, I had a younger sister who was always trying to become me, and it was so sad because she's a totally different person with wonderful gifts, and there was nothing I could say to convince her of that. Mm -hmm. So you live with someone for much of your life like this, and you do your best to be loving and accepting, and at some point they grow into their own self, I guess, and yeah. realize that they are not you, and they don't need to try and be someone else. But in the meantime, it's awkward, painful, sad, and yeah. I, I just had to love her as much as I could. Yeah. And myself. I, I couldn't change myself to the situation. Yeah, yeah, you weren't going to go around and make yourself uh, bad in order to make her feel better. <laughs> but, you know. Okay. So let's see if we can finish Chapter 5 today. Okay. So we were on verse 101. But let's go back to 100, because this is an important verse. There is no such thing as something that is not learned by a bodhisattva. You mean I have to learn how the well works? 
<laughs> and I have to learn about how to fix aircon, and I have to learn about car mechanics. Okay, let's cross those lines out. <laughs> okay, you see what the mind does automatically? It's like, that is uninteresting, boring. I don't want to learn it. Other people find it very interesting and exciting. But before I've even tried, I tell myself that because... In junior high school, they made the girls take home ec, and they didn't let us take shop, that I never learned anything about uh, fixing stuff, and so I'm incapable of doing it. And it's all the fault of the school system way back when, when they thought girl, they should educate girls to be homemakers because that's what we were going to do and educate the boys to fix things because that's what they were going to do. So it's all the fault of the school district where I grew up. But I am still not going to learn those things. They're boring. Who wants to? So why does Shandi Devas says there's no such thing as something that is not learned by a bodhisattva? Why in the world does he say that? Yeah, that's something to ask ourselves. Why does he say that? Well, my guess is why he says that is because if you're one of the first steps in benefiting people, and the, the ultimate way to benefit people is by teaching them the Dharma. But in order to get that far where somebody is going to be interested in learning the Dharma and where they're going to feel a personal connection with you so you can do that, you have to establish a, a friendly basis. Yeah, When we talk about the four ways of assembling disciples, which is part of the bodhisattva practice, the first one is being generous. In other words, giving things, and that's a way of making a connection with somebody. Yeah, With some people, the way to make the connection is not by giving them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It's by joining in the activity that they are doing, or at least expressing interest in the activity that they're doing. Okay? Because... If we want to be bodhisattvas, we have to learn to feel comfortable with all sorts of different people. So if we grew up in a certain kind of community, yeah, if you grew up in the suburbs that were all kind of homogeneous, a homogeneous community, then maybe you just feel more comfortable who grew up you know, you grew up with people like that, and you feel more comfortable with them. But are you going to be a bodhisattva who only works for the benefit of people who grew up in a homogeneous community in the suburbs? 
Yeah, that's really limiting your ability to connect with sentient beings. If you feel, you know, well, I grew up, you know, in a rural area and people went hunting and fishing and that's what we did and we all have guns and it's just the way the culture is where I grew up and I feel completely comfortable around people with guns, then are you going to be a bodhisattva that only communicates with people in, who are hunters and fishers and carry guns? How are you going to benefit all sentient beings? So we have to, you know, if not learn everything, at least show some interest in it. Yeah. And, and appreciate people who do those things because even if we don't know how, even if we're not interested, our life depends on those people. Like I told you about the guy who uh, from who was repairing our septic system at the beginning. Yeah. I you know, we were totally dependent on this man. Even though, you know, he's somebody who told me that he told the sheriff to get off his property, otherwise he would take out his gun on the sheriff. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make me feel secure around him. But, <laughs> yeah, but he was here, and we found something. We talked about his kid's education. We found that in common. We talked about that. I didn't ask him about, you know, guns and the sheriff. I didn't follow up on that. You know, tell me about your guns. Well, we have an, uh, you know, uh, XYZ 494-05, you know. <laughs> yeah, so what? Yeah, I don't understand that. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, but... Okay, uh, you know, that's who he is, and we can talk about septic fields, and we can talk about education, and, and you know, yeah, so you, we, keep, we open doors to be able to communicate with people. Yeah, that's what I find so sad about the divisions in the country right now, is that people don't seem so interested in learning about people who are different than them. Where actually it can be very interesting to learn about people who are different from us. Okay, so there's no such thing as something that is not learned by a bodhisattva. Thus, if I am skilled in living in this way, nothing will be non-meritorious. That means everything we do, every conversation we have, because we are motivated with expanding ourselves and learning how to correct, connect with other living beings, then none of those activities become non-virtuous. Okay. One... Um, uh, Kyungla Rato Rinpoche was in Tibet was a very high lama, His Holiness. Uh, around in the early 1960s, there were several lamas that he sent to the West just to 
teaching universities. Geshe Zopa was one of them, and you know there were different people who who were sent. Uh, uh, Dakpo Rinpoche was one of them, yeah, and uh, and Kyunglarata was one of them. Well, Kyunglarata Rinpoche, he, he, you know, he went to he he spent some time in New York sitting on the street panhandling because he wanted to understand how New York City functioned and the attitude of people there. So, you know, here he was. I mean, he is an incredible practitioner. Yeah. And there he was sitting on the street panhandling by choice. Well, I don't know how much by choice, because, you know, he got a job at Macy's or someplace like that, <coughs> stocking goods. Nobody knew who he was. He was just some, you know, immigrant coming to America. So, you know, he worked stocking things at a department store, and then he sat on the street for a while, and then finally some people began to figure out who he was and started to ask him for teachings. Yeah. So that, that you know, he, he wrote a book, My Life and Lives, that we should be in our library unless somebody borrowed it and didn't return it. Um, but, yeah, it's there. Yeah. And so he talks about, about this. It's really rather amazing. Okay, then 101, whether directly or indirectly, I should not do anything that is not for the benefit of others. Okay, so directly or indirectly, we should always try to do what is beneficial for others and not do things that are solely self-concerned. Okay, this, we are not perfect. Of course, we're not, we're, going to do a lot of things that are self-concerned. But he gives us this instruction so that we try and we become aware of how self-centered we are so that at least we try and slowly, slowly we can start to uh, combat that incredibly entrenched self-centeredness. Solely for the sake of sentient beings, I should dedicate everything towards awakening. Okay, so even why do I want to progress spiritually? Not so I can be a Buddha. Yeah, they're going to put me in New York Times. Tupton Children attains Buddhahood. You know, so that I can be famous and then I'll have a lot of groupies. Yeah, all of those butterflies and ants and turkey chicks, you know, they're going to follow me around. <laughs> you know, whatever it is, okay? So it's we don't want to gain spiritual realization so we can be seen as some kind of big, important person who can do magical powers. You know, we meet those people. I don't know if you have, but I've I've met people like that. You know, that's not why we're we're learning the Dharma. Okay, 
So solely for the sake of sentient beings, I should dedicate everything towards awakening. So that means that involves being humble. Okay. There's no such thing as a conceited bodhisattva. Verse 102, never, even at the cost of my life, should I forsake a spiritual friend who is wise in the meaning of the great vehicle and who is a great bodhisattva practitioner. Okay, so this is telling us that we need to rely on our spiritual teachers. Okay, so even at the cost of our life, we shouldn't forsake a spiritual friend. A spiritual friend who is wise in the meaning of the great vehicle and who is a great bodhisattva practitioner. It's not saying I should never forsake a spiritual friend who is Charlatananda, okay? You know, who in my naivety and innocence I followed around until I figured things out. It's not saying that, okay? But sometimes we get angry at our spiritual friends, our spiritual teachers, yeah? And we can get really, really mad at them. Why are they telling me to do this? Why are they acting this way? You know, and and just get furious, and and then just say, forget it. Yeah. Or uh, we can get really hurt by things. Okay. So this is a big challenge. Yeah. But the. The thing is to value people for their good qualities. So if we have, and and remember, at the beginning, it's our job to test the qualities and to check out the qualities of somebody before making them one of our spiritual teachers, okay? So we have to do that well. So if we do that well, then we're starting off the relationship with faith and confidence and trust in that person. Okay? And that faith and confidence and trust is not because they sit on a high throne and they wear brocade and, you know, other people give them lots of apples and oranges. It's because we've seen their qualities. Okay? Then if something comes up, yeah, then we have to check out, you know, why am I reacting to this? Is it because the teacher did something unethical or is it because we have different ways of doing things? Or is it maybe that the teacher is facing social pressure that they are abiding by, not because they are kowtowed by social pressure, but because in the long run, it is better to do this for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay. Uh, For example, yeah, the Buddha, I don't know how much if the Buddha really taught Mount Meru and, you know, the four continents. I haven't seen that in, in the, you know, it may actually be in the sutras. In in our tradition, it's much more in, in Vasubandhu, uh, you know, 
but he's very highly respected. Okay. So, uh, you know, why did Vasubandha say that, you know, or even if the Buddha said it? It's because at that time, that was what fit that culture. And to say, I'm omniscient and, you know, this stuff is nonsense, that would not have endeared people in a way that would have given Vasubandhu the opportunity to really lead them on the path because they would start bickering about what kind, what shape the universe is in instead of debating the nature of reality. Okay? So sometimes, you know, because the Dharma always exists in a culture, it seems to me that sometimes the teachers may do things according to that culture rather than, you know, start a whole new thing based on something that wasn't really that important and essential for uh, somebody's spiritual practice. Okay, so if the Buddha, you know, went and and started saying, uh, you know, all sorts of outrageous things, even though some people at the, his time believed those things, you know, that probably would not have been so skillful. You know, why did he see selfless, teach selflessness or no self? Because the people at that time were ready for it. Yeah. Why didn't he teach uh, bodhicitta uh, publicly at that time because most of the people at that time were not ready for it, so he taught it to a particular audience. Okay. Why didn't he teach the structure of the universe according to science, even though he was omniscient? Because the structure of the universe is not important to attaining awakening. Okay? So I think I, I told you, you know, one of my dear teachers, Geshe Jampa Tekchuk, who incredible teacher. I miss, he's one that I really miss a lot. And he, uh, you know, he thought the world was flat. Yeah? Until, <laughs> and then <laughs> one of the nuns figured out that, uh, you know, the hell realm would be in in Los Angeles, so in Hollywood. I don't know. Yeah, if you went according to the ancient description. Okay. Did I take teachings with him to learn about the structure of the universe? No, I don't care beans about that. You know, he knows about emptiness and he knows about bodhicitta and that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. So if he wants to believe that the world is flat, that's okay with me. He also loved Tibetan tea, even though it was very bad for his health. And the doctor told him so. And we tried to get him to stop drinking Tibetan tea. He wanted to drink Tibetan tea. Am I going to say, oh, I don't think you're a qualified lama because you drink Tibetan tea? 
when in Tibet, that's perfectly okay. But when you're living in France, you know, don't drink that. You know, I mean, that would be stupid on my part, wouldn't it? Okay. So we have to see when we have a, a difference with our, one of our teachers. Is it based on ethical conduct or is it just based on people have different beliefs and people do things differently. Yeah. One of my teachers starts teaching, he'll schedule a teaching for seven in the evening. He'll start teaching at 11. It'll go to four in the morning. Yeah, I'm a morning person. I would rather get up at four in the morning than go to sleep at four in the morning. You know, I... At 11 o'clock, I'm done. I cannot focus. Yeah. Am I going to get angry and say, you know, why are you doing that? It's, well, he want, if he wants to start teachings at 11 o'clock, that is his prerogative. It's not for me to dictate. Yeah, I can adjust or I don't adjust. And I don't need to be upset about it. You know, that's what he likes to do. Yeah, not everybody needs to like, not everybody is a morning person like me. Okay. Now, don't all come to me now and say, well, I want to sleep until 11 because I'm not like you and I don't want to be a morning person and I'd much rather stay awake, you know, until midnight. You know, no, I mean, this is how we react with our teachers, okay? Yeah. So if you have a wise teacher uh, who, you know, knows the meaning of the Mahayana and is a good bodhisattva practitioner, then even at the cost of our life, we shouldn't get furious and just stomp out, Okay. Now, the question comes, well, what happens if the difference is due to ethical conduct? And I think my teacher is be doing something that is not ethical. Yeah. Then what His Holiness advises is you go in and talk to them and you say, I observe this behavior. I would like to understand it. You know, you listen, you discuss with them. Um, if the, if it still doesn't make sense to you or satisfy you, then you keep a respectful distance, but you are grateful to them for everything they did do for you and how they got you going in the Dharma. Yeah. So, you know, we've had scandals in the Tibetan tradition. All religions have had scandals in their tradition. Yeah. Even people who aren't religious have scandals in their group. You know? I mean, this is samsara, isn't it? So the, the thing is, uh, you know, if somebody is, is doing something unethical, we need to call it out, see if we can help them repair it. Yeah. Otherwise, we can still appreciate the good that somebody's done, even though we don't we think that this particular action is harmful. And we don't, you know, in that area, trust that person. 
you know, and we may keep a respectful distance and not go to teachings anymore because it was, you know, such a, a big unethical thing. But we can still be grateful for whatever they did. Okay? And I think this is important also. People have so many problems with their parents, at least my generation does, you know, to see, do learn how to appreciate our parents for what they did do for us. And not, again, develop this thing of you did one thing I don't like, so therefore everything you did is bad and you're a horrible, defective person. Okay? But to learn to appreciate what they did do for us. Okay, then verse 103. I should practice entrusting myself to a spiritual mentor in the manner taught in the biography of Sri Sambhava. This and other advice spoken by the Buddha, I can understand through reading the sutras. So this verse is encouraging us to read the sutras. And it's also in, uh, telling us that we can find in the sutras very good advice about how to rely on a spiritual mentor and create a, a relationship that's really going to benefit us in our spiritual practice. So, um, Sri Sambhava, you remember in the uh, Gandavuha Sutra, in which is the uh, one part of the Avatamsaka Sutra, and it's one part you know, it's a sutra that's part of a bigger sutra. But that's where the king of prayers is, okay? And the king of prayers is, uh, there. there's a whole story behind it. Uh, you know, there's a, a young uh, man, Sudana, who wants to learn the Bodhisattva path. And so the, the sutra is about his journey. And he uh, has... 53 teachers, yeah, and he starts out with one teacher who teaches him one aspect of the Bodhisattva path, and then says, okay, that's what I have to teach you, go to so-and-so, and he will teach you the next step, because that person knows it better than I do, and then Sudana goes to the next one, and he learns something, and then that one sends him on to another teacher. So, uh, Sri Sambhava uh, is a young boy, and he and he teaches together with a young girl. I don't know if they're brother or sister or friends or whatever it is. But of the 53 teachers that Sudhana has, uh, they're the 50th. So very close to the end of the, the path. Okay. So... If we uh, study that sutra that talks about the biography of Sri Sambhava and the young girl, I forget her name. Um, does it have it in the footnote? What is it back here? Hmm. Okay. The biography of Sri Sambhava included in the Gandavuha Sutra. Then there's a quote here. Okay, so this is what uh, Shanti Deva was referring to. One should honor and respect the spiritual friend with a mind like the earth, which does not become discouraged, although it bears all burdens. 
like a diamond indestructible in its intention, like a mighty fence which cannot be breached by any sufferings, like a slave who does not complain in having to undertake all tasks, okay? like a sweeper having relinquished all self-importance, like a vehicle in bearing heavy loads, like a pet dog in not becoming angry, like a boat which does not object to coming and going, and like a wise son in beholding the face of the spiritual friend. So, noble child, you should recognize yourself to be a sick person, a spiritual friend to be the doctor, his precepts to be the medicine, and an earnest practice to be the way to treat the sickness. Okay, so that that last bit about the the analogy to sick and doctor and so forth, this is the sutra source of it. Okay, now this other thing, you know, you should be uh, like a slave who does not complain in in having to undertake all tasks. That's how I relate to my spiritual uh, teacher. I should be like a slave. I should be like a sweeper. I should be like a pet dog. Bow wow, bow wow. <laughs> you know, pet me, pet me. You know, I'm going to jump all over you. <laughs> you know, these analogies, okay? So, so we have to recognize that the, the analogies are culture specific. Yeah. At that time, in ancient India, their slavery existed, okay? So they were using that example of slaves. Because, you know, one of our, to become ordained, you have to be free of social obligations. So this could be either being a soldier, where you uh, have obligations to the military, certain government positions where you have obligations to the government, or a slave where you have obligations to, to your slave master. Okay, now we look at that and find it repugnant. Okay, it just doesn't match with our society nowadays. Okay, it matched with their society. It doesn't mean all of Buddhism is wrong because somebody used this analogy. Yeah, it's just according to that society. It doesn't mean we need to have that attitude and think, okay, I'm going to act like a pet dog. Yeah, I am a pet dog, you know, like a pet dog and not becoming angry. You know, oh, you're not petting me. I need some pets. You're not feeding me. You're not feeding me. I'm not going to get angry. Oh, you know, wag my tail. Will you like me some more, please? Okay. <laughs> you know, what is the purpose of saying like, like that, you know? Well, a pet dog doesn't get angry at their master because they know the master cares about them. And if the master, you know, has to discipline them at one time, it's because you're tearing up the house. You know, you're a puppy and you're running around tearing everything up, being totally obnoxious. So, the, you know, your owner needs to discipline you. So, you know, 
sometimes as disciples, we are like that. We're running around, tearing everything up, being totally obnoxious. Now, I know that none of you are like that. Yeah. And so all of these instructions don't apply to anybody here because we are all perfect. Always considerate, always obliging, always polite disciples. Yes. Yeah. So he's saying this for other people. Okay. So, um, yeah, maybe it's trying, it's using extreme examples, but it's trying to get across to us, okay, to be like a slave who does not complain in having to undertake all tasks. Now, to think of ourselves as a slave, no. You know, now, to think of ourselves as not complaining to uh, and having to undertake all tasks, that sounds like a good disciple. But I reserve the right to complain. If I don't like the task you're giving me, I am going to complain. It is my right, you know, and I'm going to file a suit with the government that, that you're not being an appropriate spiritual mentor by making me do the dishes when I'm not on the road to do the dishes that day. Okay, so do you, do you see what the analogy is getting at? Okay, like a sweeper, you know, a sweeper. Okay, having relinquished all self-importance. Oh, that sounds good. Yes, I want to be a very humble person. I want to be humble. I want to be the most humble <laughs> so that I am special in being the most humble t- disciple. Yes. I have no self-importance at all. Yeah. But be sure that when you're praising people, you point me out. And don't you dare point out another disciple that I'm competing with. Because then I'll think that you've abandoned me. So it's not me abandoning you as my teacher. It's you abandoning me because you're not praising me in front of a group of people. When I'm the one who assumed this responsibility and did all the work. Okay, so, you know, you have to look at the behaviors that that are bring, being prescribed here and seeing if, if, you know, it doesn't mean that you're a sweeper and you have to go around and sweep the floor in front of every step that your, your teacher takes. Although if you really want to, you could mow the weeds on, you know, between here and my cabin. But, yeah. <laughs> oh, everybody went, me mow the weeds? No way. <laughs> Okay, so, uh, yeah, check up your attitude, (laughs) you know? I mean, this is, we have to check up the attitudes that are being described here, okay? 
So uh, this and other advice spoken by the Buddha I can understand through reading the sutras. So it's encouraging us to read the sutras. Yeah. Okay, then 104, also about uh, studying the sutras. I should read the sutras because it is from them that the practices appear. To begin with, I should look at the sutra of Akashagarbha. So Akashagarbha, we, we know him, don't we? Yeah? How do we know Akashagarbha? Yeah, he's the one who asked the question of the Buddha in the Sutra of, of the Wisdom Going Beyond. Okay, so there's a Sutra about him. Yeah, so we should look it up. Okay. I did at one point, and then this morning I couldn't find these references. <laughs> okay. So again, referring us to, to the sutras. And you have to remember, you know, when you read things, that, that they're written in a certain cultural context and don't get all upset because of that thing, you know. Then 105, in addition, I should definitely read the compendium of all practices again and again. Because what is to be constantly practiced is very well and extensively shown in there. Okay. So here the footnote tells us that's the Siksha Samuchaya written by Shantideva. Okay, he only did two texts, Bodhichavatara and Siksha uh, Samuchaya. Okay, so here it says this is a text from various Mahayana sutras by Shantideva himself as a complementary volume to the Bodhicharyavatara. And um, it's been translated into English by a friend of Geshe Dadal. Yeah, so uh, I have one copy in my room. Um, I don't know, if, do we have a copy in the library too? Okay, good. Yeah. So, yeah, Shanti Devil went through and drew out certain quotations uh, from different sutras and compiled them into this text. You know, um, because then that that's it's kind of like cliff notes. You know, he's giving us the really important stuff in in the sutras. And then one o five. Okay, that's what we just read. Then 106, I should also sometimes look at the condensed compendium of all sutras, and I should make an effort to study the works by the same two titles composed by the exalted Nagarjuna. So I think there might be also a Shikshashamuchaya composed by Nagarjuna. I'm not sure, but there, I have some, something is, you know, Ringling back there. But uh, uh, Nagarjuna did write the Sutra Samuchaya, the compendium of all sutras. Okay, and so there too, he's probably taking out quotations from specific sutras that he thinks are really important for us. 
Shall we finish the chapter? 107. I should do whatever is not forbidden in those works. And when I see a practice there, I should impeccably put it into action in order to guard the minds of worldly people. Okay? So we should learn from the sutras. We should learn from the commentaries. We should learn from our teachers. And whatever we learn, to the best of our ability, put it into practice. We shouldn't beat ourselves up if it's too advanced of a practice that we're not capable of doing right now. Rather, at the, if that happens, we should generate an aspiration to create the causes so that in the future we will be capable of doing that practice. But if we're not capable now, you know, don't kind of squeeze yourself and say, you know, I have to do this. And also because we take so many teachings and then, you know, you'll just get thoroughly confused. What do I practice? Because this one, this one, this one, this one I have to practice now. Oh, the biography of Sri Sambhava and the Sutra of Akashagarbha and the compendium of all practices and the compendium of all sutras. And I've got to practice them and I already have a daily practice and there's just too much and how am I going to do it all? Okay, don't get yourself into that mental state. Yeah. What it's saying is, you know, keep this in mind and do what you can. You know, at some point, you know, I learn, uh, find those sutras. Yeah. Hopefully some of them are, well, you know, Shiksha Samuchaya is. Um, you know, read them. It doesn't mean you have to read them from cover to cover in two days. Yeah, but read them, learn what you can as you continue practicing, come back to them, read them again. Okay, so, you know, what it's saying is is keep studying, keep learning, and at different points, different uh, instructions will really come to you, and you'll say, oh, this is one now I need to focus on. You know, maybe before it was one we didn't understand, it was too advanced or whatever. Okay, on the back burner. But I still respect it. I don't say, because I can't do it, therefore it's hocus pocus. Okay, this is what some people do. You know, they don't want to do it, or they can't do it, so therefore the Buddha did not say that. Okay, we don't do that. We can look and say, wow, that is incredible. I mean, when we read about what the Bodhisattvas practice, some of it is totally amazing. Yeah, I'm, you know, we're not in any shape to do that right now, but I can respect that and revere that and honor it and honor the people who can do that practice and aspire to be able to do it myself in the future. I don't just say, well, you know, that sounds too hard and I'm not interested, so the Buddha didn't teach it. That, that is abandoned, what they call abandoning the Dharma. Okay. The defining characteristic of guarding alertness or uh, introspective awareness, in brief, is only this, to examine again and again the condition of my body and mind. And that's what introspective awareness does. It monitors our body, speech, and mind. 
What am I doing? Yeah? Is it something virtuous? Is it something beneficial? Or am I, you know, out on a limb somewhere with some chipmunk? <laughs> yeah. Actually, the chipmunk would not be so foolish to be out on a limb. They know it's much safer to be closer to the trunk. Yeah. But we like to get ourselves out on the limb and wave a flag or two. And then uh, 109, therefore, I shall, put, uh, um, I shall put this way of life into actual practice for what can be achieved by merely talking about it. This is a good question. Okay? Some of us love talking. Some of us love being inspired by listening to other people talk. But to practice ourselves, that means I have to exert some effort. And I'll do that, but right now I need to take a nap. And after that, I have to have lunch. And then after that, I have to go to the gym. And after that, you know, I have to go to the bank. And then after that, I'll read the verse again. <laughs> okay? Therefore, I shall put this way of life into into actual practice for what can be achieved by merely talking about it. Will the sick receive benefit merely by reading the medical texts? That's a good analogy, isn't it? Yeah, you're sick, so you read the medical text. You can tell somebody all about what ails you. You know, what you should eat, what you should not eat, what you should do, what you should not do. Yeah, do you follow any of the instructions? No! It's too inconvenient, and it's anyway, it doesn't meet with what I feel like doing. But I can tell you all about it. So it reminds me of um, Peldon Gyatso's book when he was talking about after he was uh, arrested by the Chinese communists and you know, put in prison, he he heard or he overheard uh, some of the Chinese communist officials interviewing one Geshe. And as we know, Geshe's are, you know, have a very good education. They have to pass different exams and so on and so forth. And the official was, you know, threatening to, threatening the Geshe. And the Geshe just broke down sobbing. And Peldon Gyatso was going, this is the difference between somebody who studied and somebody who practiced. Yeah? Because somebody who was able to put it into practice is very aware of impermanence and would not get upset. Yeah? So it makes makes me think of that. And... uh, you know, someday I'm going to get caught in that thing, too. I know all about it and how to talk about it, and reality is going to smack me in the face, and practice that. 
yeah, I've been aspiring to practice it. It sounds so good, but right now I'm suffering. And so please kiss me and make it all go away. You know how your mom used to kiss you when you got, you know, you know, the, the, you, you, yeah, didn't your mom kiss you when you, when you got injured? No. My mom used to kiss the, the wound, you know. <laughs> unless, unless, unless she was telling me, why in the world did you do that? I've told you a thousand times not to do that, and then you go do it, and look what happens to you. Okay, so sometimes that was the response, and sometimes it was, oh, poor you. Okay, so it, it depended. <laughs> okay, uh... Time for one or two questions. Anything? Okay, good. We'll dedicate. 